baby juggle this morning. Thanks, baby. And um, actually, we were doing the baby juggle last week as well. Have I got snot trails on my black T-shirt? Probably. Um, and I think we all got here in, uh, at around about 8.30 <clears throat> and uh, we had our things to do and so our kids dispersed and did, did their thing. Uh, and about a third of the way through Graham's sermon, Sherilyn, who was teaching children's church, came in with a really disturbed look on her face and she said, Ignatius is supposed to be in my class. He, he hasn't turned up. Now, if you know Ignatius, that probably wouldn't surprise you. Um, so I thought he's probably attached himself to another class somewhere in the building. So I went around and visited all the other uh, children's church classes and I couldn't find him. And by that stage, I was a little bit like, uh, um, I've just been watching that Madeleine McCann documentary on Netflix, which I probably shouldn't be doing. And so my heart was a little bit... Uh, and so I came back through the auditorium and I saw him down, ducked down on the chair over there, uh, just doing some colouring in or some drawing. So I went up to him and said, mate, are you OK? All your mates are in children's church. And he said, oh, I must have gone to the toilet when everyone got released and I came back in and saw the big kids and thought all the kids were still in here. Um, so, yeah, it, thank you for being an accommodating church that, that lets uh, someone preach with snot stains on their shoulder and uh, a, a little bit harried. But lots of you probably feel a little bit harried, don't you? We're all in it together. Hey, um, do we have a, a slide up there, uh, Daisy? Yeah. Uh, in this season of preparing to journey the way of the cross, uh, what I'm picking up on this morning is the idea of laying down the idol of self to take up the image of God in others. And we've used this language of laying down and taking up. It's a little bit like going on a special journey. Imagine I'm going on mission, for instance. Those of you who know me know that I, I love my books, uh, but I wouldn't take all of my books on the mission field, on a mission trip. They just wouldn't fit in my pack. If God calls me to somewhere a bit remote, um, it would be a ridiculous idea to take everything uh, that I might feel that I need for ministry and life here with me there. And we've understood this kind of as a general principle as we prepare for Easter, that it can be useful in certain seasons of our life to be on a particular mission, to be particularly focused. And that entails and necessitates a putting down of some things to take up others. Donna talked about the way that she put down social media to take up extra Bible studies. Such a great example of what I'm talking about. So laying down the idol of self to take up the image of God. We live in rather unusual times in that our neighbours, friends and colleagues, amongst them there's a good chance that there are people who don't believe in God. Am I right? You've got people in your life who don't believe in God. And when I say believe in God, I mean it in the fullest, sort of most biblical sense. There are people who reject the idea of God. 
They might say, I see no evidence for God. But then there are also people who might uh, assent to the idea of God, say, oh yeah, I I believe that God might exist or does exist, but then they don't live in a way that is reflective of that idea. Sometimes people talk about this as a kind of functional atheism. They might give the tick to the idea of God, but they live as though they're not answerable to an authority beyond themselves. And I think one of the challenges for the church over recent centuries in our kind of context is many people like that are actually in the church. Uh, Many of us might identify with people like that and feel a little bit like we might be one of those people at least some of the time. I can say it's a struggle for me, right? I believe in God, but I know that I don't always live as though I believe in God. I know that you would all say amen quietly. I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud. Now, this is unusual because for most of history, people have been um, very comfortable or very aware or very orientated towards the idea of there being gods or a god, right? Um, If we think about the biblical kind of context the Old Testament context, pretty much everyone, all cultures, had some sort of idea of the divine. And I've got a picture up on the screen here of what they call a ziggurat. Um, And this uh, is in modern-day Iraq and was partially restored by uh, Saddam Hussein. Um, And a ziggurat was um, sort of a, a temple and its platform. It was, it was kind of an artificial mountain within which and upon which a temple rested. Um, if it was in a flat place, you would need an artificial mountain because for ancient peoples, they identified high places as a sort of in-between the heavens and the earth, right? And so it made sense that um, if you wanted a god to dwell in the earth, if you wanted to connect with a god, that would happen somewhere between that heavenly realm, the realm of divinity and the gods, and the earthly realm. And what you often found with these temples, and continue to find in many parts of the world today, is that as much as the temple was a sort of site of worship and devotion to a particular god. Um, It was also a model of what they understood the universe to be like. It was a kind of microcosm. So the Greek word cosmos kind of means universe, everything that we know there exists, and a a model, as it were, of that cosmos. Um, And the basic thinking was this. We want to give our god or gods a home amongst us, right? If our gods somehow live on a divine plane somewhere else, but we recognise that they have influence in our world, we can kind of connect with our god or gods by giving them this foothold in the universe. And it was kind of like saying, um, if we create a model that places our god here with us, there will be a sense in which our God will actually be here with us. And so they would build um, 
oftentimes a sort of uh, a structure that had degrees uh, of of the image that they were trying to present. It had sections of the cosmos. And so the outer realm or the whole mountain might be the universe. Um, But then as you got closer to the middle of the temple, you would get closer to the place where the god actually rested. So there might be um, some stairs that you take to ascend to the central dwelling place of the god. You might go in through a portal into a sanctuary, as it were, where this particular god dwelt. And then when you got into this sanctuary, there you would often, if not generally, find a statue that represented the god. Now, this isn't a new idea to us, is it? If you've travelled at all through Asia, you've probably visited... Hindu temples, Buddhist temples where you go in and then pride of place inside that temple is given to a picture of the God. But it's not just a picture. It's not just two-dimensional. It's very often three-dimensional to some degree, like this one here. This is an ancient Sumerian God. And the thinking there was that if we could give our God a body in our world. Maybe we can connect with our deity, with our gods in this life, in this world, in a particular way. Now, against a cultural background like what we would call the ancient Near East, where um, the people of Israel came from and this was going on, we find something similar, yet a little bit different, with God's people. Uh, We read in the Old Testament about the fact that um, God didn't really want to dwell in a temple like many of the gods of the nations around Israel. And there's a whole heap of reasons for that that we won't go into now. But God asked to live in a tent. And part of that was because his people were on the move, right? He hadn't actually brought them into the promised land yet. Perhaps, in a sense, he always wanted them to be ready to move. And if you read um, in Exodus, I think it's about chapters 36 to 38, you can read in great detail about the setting up of this tent in which God would dwell. If we fast forward a little bit, we know that God did eventually come to dwell in a temple, But that was partly because the people wanted God to dwell in the temple. It was partly because they'd come into the promised land. But perhaps they were looking at the culture of their neighbours and thinking, geez, it would make a lot more sense if we had a temple like everyone else. God kind of coalesced to that, uh, assented to that and said, okay, I can do that. Now, Graham has talked a bit about this as he's preached, and I think I've mentioned it as well. It was never God's intention to live in a building, in a permanent structure. God did live in a tent, but actually if we go even further back, there's lots of stuff in scripture that points to the fact that God's intention was to live in the world with his people. Um, and in fact, his sanctuary, if the whole of the cosmos was where he would live, was where, Graham talked about, in the garden. Um, in Genesis, 
it talks about the fact that God desired to... He walked in the garden. It was kind of the place where he was living. Now, here's a little clue that connects the temple with the garden. You can see those two angels. Um, they're over uh, that sort of threshold there. Then they're also on the curtain. Those are seraphim. Uh, sorry, cherubim, angels that guard something. And you might remember from those first uh, chapters of Genesis that we read about those cherubim elsewhere. In Genesis 3.24, um, it talks about after Adam and Eve were driven out of God's sanctuary, the Garden of Eden, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Is that ringing bells for people? You know that story. So interestingly, the temple was set up on that east-west orientation. And those cherubim that we're looking at there, they faced out to the east in the same way that the cherubim which guarded the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had been expelled were facing the east trying to protect um, people from getting back in to that Garden of Eden. Interesting stuff, hey? Um, There's further parallels. You can see there those menorah that were in um, the holy place. So on the other side of that curtain is the most holy place. That room that you can see there, only the priests could go into. And if you know a little bit about the Jewish religion, it was only the high priest who'd go in behind that curtain to the Holy of Holies. But the menorah are often identified in Judaism as a picture of the tree of life. Hmm. So that's there in this temple garden. Behind that curtain... In the holiest place where only the high priest could go, you would find this particular item. Does anyone know what it's called? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant. And again there, you see those protecting cherubim. And inside that box, really, uh, were the tablets that Moses received from God with the law written on them. And people have drawn a line between those tablets and um, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that was the tree that Eve ate the fruit from, which eventuated in their being expelled from the garden. And the thinking here is that what Eve was really doing when she was eating fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she was saying... While we can dwell here with God and rely on him to instruct us as to what is good and what is evil, I want to reject that place of authority that God has in this relationship. I want to grasp the power for determining good from evil. And it's as though from that point... The evidence mounts up that human beings aren't very good at working out the difference between good and evil. And we see that once they've disobeyed God and they're out of the garden, the very first murder 
occurs within a short um, succession of time and then they mount up the grievances, one human being to another, the grievances against creation. And so into this broken world, this fallen world, this sinful world, however you've come to think of it, God gifts a people that he chooses those tablets which represent the law and the law, which are a kind of way of pointing from that state of brokenness to the state which God intended for creation to dwell in, which is, and we've talked about this before, a state of shalom, of right order, of peace, right? And so this is a a little bit hard to see, but just up in... (laughs) Here you can see that's actually a whole lot more evidence that we won't go into, that the temple is a kind of picture of the garden. There's pomegranate trees and all sorts of symbolic stuff. Um, And if you think I'm sort of sucking this out of my thumb, here's a book that you could go and read by a very conservative scholar actually called uh, G.K. Beale. He's a New Testament scholar and, and he kind of says this is pretty clearly this is what's going on in the temple, this is what's going on in the tabernacle, it is a picture of the garden. The law is a kind of accommodation for the fact that we, um, we don't, as human beings, know how to handle that power, to grasp the authority over what's good and what's wrong and live that out ourselves. We make a mess of that. And so God says to Israel here, so that you can become a people who can show your neighbours what I'm, I, the God of the universe, actually intended for humanity and creation. Here's some laws, a framework, which will point to shalom, which will point to peace, which will point ultimately to me and my intention for all of creation to be in harmony. Is that sort of making sense? And this is nothing new, really. I think I've probably preached this sermon 50 different ways, um, and hopefully there will be some new insight for us uh, today. But to some extent, this is the only sermon there is, so stay on track with me here. What happens when you go into a temple is you get to that sanctuary of the divine being, of the God, and there you find this representation of the God. I've just talked about this, an image of the God. I think this is Vishnu, the Hindu God, and this was out of a temple. And again, uh, God's people are a little bit the same, but pretty significantly different as well, because you get to the sanctuary of God in scripture and you don't find uh, a God that looks like an elephant you don't find a God that's half human half horse or half any other creature you get to the sanctuary which is the garden of Eden the intended sanctuary um, of God's temple and you find the image of God as human right 
was very difficult to find a picture of Adam and Eve that wasn't either borderline erotic or completely ridiculous. Uh, so I threw something serious in there and, and trusted that it would be grainy enough that we wouldn't be too scandalised by any not safe for church bits. And then I just uh, I couldn't help myself with. Uh, the tiger, which is covering the not safe for church bits. The tiger's actually sort of taking a look backwards towards uh, Adam in all his glory, but um, doing it in that kind of big cat way that I really don't care about anything because I'm the boss here. And Jesus, thankfully, he's got clothes on. Um, and he's blocking the giraffe's view of Eve. Uh, no prizes for guessing what sort of stream of Christian-like religious tradition that picture comes from. Anyway, I'm I'm sure we've been guilty of producing those sorts of images as well. Don't miss this for all the laughing. The image of God in God's intended temple is not a half-person, half-beast thing. It's not a beast thing. It's the human being. Adam and Eve. And um, you don't have to sort of do too much mental gymnastics to get into the ancient Near Eastern worldview when it came to the significance of these particular human beings being set up as the image of God in God's intended temple. Ancient Near Eastern people would have thought of it in the way that we should now think of it. Adam and Eve is no more um, Clem as a Kiwi than it is Depo as a Nigerian. Adam and Eve are no more um, Jonah as a male than Dan as a male or Sherilyn as a female and Joy as a female. As our kind of progenitors as the original human beings, we are all equally related to them. But it has an extra dimension where whatever can be said of them in this text can also be said of us. And so this struggle that they have with temptation, with sin, with uh, the fallenness which comes through um, their disobedience to God, with their alienation one from another as men as women, men and women, their alienation from creation where uh, the soil is cursed for Adam and he has to work hard, we all kind of share in that. So while we would uh, say there's particularity about who these people are, They're sort of a universal picture of all of us. All of us as the image of God, Um, whether a a white Australian or I've got some um, African brothers here, the Filberts, uh, whether you're from Burundi or Congo, all equally the image of God, Cambodian, Iranian, able, disabled, you name it, however we might categorise other human beings. We are all equally sharers in the image of God. Now, this might not be new to you, but it's really important. And if this isn't new to you, it's worth hearing this again. A colleague of mine talks about justice 
being the work that happens between the brokenness of this world and God's peace. Right? And that was really the intent of the law. I had that other uh, slide that had the law there where I've got justice. The law was kind of to say, actually, there is a better way and God has a better intention and design for creation for you as human beings. He doesn't intend for you to live in this sinful, broken, fallen state. He intends for you to to live in shalom. He intends for you to live in a kind of garden where your needs are met, um, where you have a purpose and a function, where there is harmony. So justice is the intention of the law. Justice is the intention of the law if we read the Old Testament. And so it should not surprise us then when we find things like this. This is from the prophet Amos speaking for God. I hate and I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for this kind of worship. All away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Let righteousness flow like a never-ending stream. The religious worship of Israel, which was intended to point them to God and indeed point the whole of creation to God, somehow seemed to fall short. And Amos points to the why here. It falls short when the law becomes a kind of idol, right? If the law fits where justice is there, the law takes people in their state of brokenness and points to God, points to shalom. But the thing is, in our broken nature, we can get stuck on the law and forget that it was intended to point to God and to point to shalom. This is definitely not the only place where we see this in Scripture, though. Hosea 6 says something similar. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. If you go far enough that you're following the law, but you get stuck there and you forget that it was meant to point to the peace of God, to the shalom of God, and God's intention that all people whom share the image of God would partake in that, then you've essentially made an idol out of the law. And it's easy to understand how that could happen when what was in the Holy of Holies was a box with these law tablets on it. Nevertheless, it was not God's intention. We can see this same theme coming through in the New Testament. Um, Jesus echoes the prophet Hosea here. He um, has just um, called Matthew, a tax collector, into his plans and purposes to be a disciple, to walk with him, to dwell with him, as it were. And the religious leaders say, hang on a second, that is not the kind of person who gets to walk with God. Right? 
He is compromised. He is not a true Jew. He is, um, he's on the side of the empire that is getting in the way of faithfulness for us as people. And Jesus says this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We can also see it in the second chapter of Mark. Jesus, uh, with his hungry disciples, is walking through a grain field and he says to his disciples, though it is the Sabbath, the day on which we are not to work as God's people, Pick a few grains of rice and fill your empty tummies. And of course, the religious leaders jump on that as evidence of the fact that he's a lawbreaker, a Sabbath breaker, the Sabbath being such a significant law for the Jews, something which made them set apart from the nations around them. And Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for human beings, right? It's not that human beings were made for the Sabbath You've gotten things back to front. You've got stuck on the law. You're making an idol out of the law. The intention of the law has always been to bring people to God's peace, to bring people back to that place of being able to walk with the Lord in the cool of the garden, to be in communion with God, to be in fellowship with God. But not only that, to live in an ordered sense, to live in a place where there is justice, where there is peace, where there is love and community. It's why Jesus can say in Mark 12, when he's asked by the religious leaders, what is the most important of the laws? And they're trying to trip him up. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This is the intent of the law, that you should see that God is imaged in every single human being, regardless of where they come from, what they look like, how variously abled or disabled they are, how they spend their time, each created in God's image. And his intention for them is to live in the garden with them. You following? This making sense? And so that blue doesn't look that great. What this points us to is we are variously making an idol of ourself or we are taking up the image of God in others. Bob Dylan sang that song about you've got to serve somebody, um, and I think he was, he was kind of echoing St Augustine who talked about the fact that we're always worshipping something, right? As we worship, we're either making idols, and um, they may be an idol of the law, which... Uh, we don't have time to go into here, but uh, is really just an idol of self. <laughs> if we're making an idol of anything, we're really just normally worshipping ourselves, Or we are taking up the image of God in others, which is true worship, right? Amos says, you're not worshipping unless you're doing justice. You're not worshipping unless you are acknowledging the fact that God's intention is for all people, as his image bearers, to live in the garden with him. 
so we can be like Adam and Eve and we are like him and her making an idol out of self in the holy place, in the dwelling place of God, in the sanctuary of God, reaching out and trying to grasp that God status, trying to put ourself above God, trying to evict God from his sanctuary. Or we can be like Jesus in the passage that we've just read and here's a, an etching of Jesus calling that sinner, that tax collector Matthew, to be one of his disciples where he sees God's intention for a broken, fallen man and says you can be a part of God's plans and purposes because God has always intended to live with you in the garden. True worship serves God by serving his intention. If God's intention has always been for shalom, has always been to live in community with people, if that's what he was doing when he created the universe, creating a temple and then a sanctuary within which he could dwell with the people that he created, to worship God is to align ourselves with that. And to align ourselves with that, we have to recognise his image, his image in others. We need to be about the business of taking up the image of God in other people. That is our function, as it were, as God's creation, as the people of God. And so I want to just um, look at this practically before we wind up for the morning. We're talking about laying down and taking up. And I have to credit the missiologist um, Mike Frost with these categories. I've kind of tweaked them a little bit to make them kind of fit our context. But he talks about the things that we would need to lay down and the things we would need to take up as God's people on God's mission, functioning as God would intend for us in this world. He talks about laying down the propping up of our own image. And I I think uh, your little um, bit of input this morning, Donna, really speaks to this, the social media thing. For many of us, if we're under 25, like Donna and I are, you know, there is a culture which says... Project a certain image of yourself. Show the world what a successful person you are. Show the world what a great time you're having. Show the world uh, that you're beautiful if you put enough filters uh, (laughs) on uh, your wrinkly skin. Um, But what would we take up if we were to lay that down? And maybe you can think of other ways that you might be tempted to prop up your image. Think very specifically about how you might be able to lay these things down in the journey to Easter and take something else up. How about laying down your image to take up living authentically? And and Donna's done just that. Rather than if you do have to go on social media... If you do have to go on Instagram, that soul-destroying wasteland that it is, it's great that a platform was invented for aspiring models to share philosophy, uh, which is kind of what Instagram is whenever I go. That's what I get away from it. 
for some reason I need to be wearing a bikini to make some sort of deep statement about following your dream. Um, rather than wasting your time sowing into that culture, why don't you think about the people that actually need not just likes but love? If you've got to be on the platform, maybe you know people who don't get a lot of likes and don't get a lot of love. Maybe it looks like instead of sharing a picture of your dinner, sending someone a direct message and saying, I was just thinking of you and I want you to know I've always appreciated this about you or I see what you're doing with your picture. That looks really interesting. You get the principle, the idea, laying down the propping up of our image. There's other ways that we could do that. There's a start so that we could live authentically and live in love. What about laying down the service of our own causes all the time? I recognise the text a bit awkward up there as I look at it. The way of the world, the way of the empire is to always be serving our own cause. What about taking up serving a cause bigger than ourselves? What about laying down the guarding of our tribe? And we've all got tribes, right? Whether that's our family or our cultural group or our state or whatever that is. Being willing to say, actually, the image of God isn't just in people who are related in, related to me. The image of God isn't just in people who speak the same language as I do. The image of God isn't just in people who share the same values as I do. I'm going to serve a cause bigger than my tribe. I'm going to show love across those boundaries. Guarding our own tribe or enlarging God's tribe. The mission of God has always been about the enlargement of his tribe. That was the purpose of choosing a people, Israel. It wasn't so that they would always be separate. It was so that they would show people how to get to him. How can you do that? How can you substitute living to guard your own tribe for living to enlarge God's tribe? And I think Pastor Clem's going to pick some of this stuff up next week, so I don't want to go into too much detail. Here's one. Hospitality to those we like. Laying that down to take up hospitality to those in need. If Friday night is the time when you eat Thai food with the people that just flow really easily with you, you know those people that that it's easy on a Friday night, you're all feeling tired, you know it doesn't matter because they're your people, they won't judge you, you laugh at the same things, you've seen the same movies. Maybe in the lead up to Easter it looks like putting that on ice for a while and connecting with someone who it's been a while, right? Connecting with someone who maybe needs to connect in and hasn't been connecting in so well. And finally, laying down, working just for our own benefit and taking up, working for shalom in the world. I think about this in my workplaces and, and yours, I think, as well. You know how you can go over and above to build your career, to enhance your status in the company, to hopefully open up a pathway for promotion. What would it look like in the next few weeks leading up to Easter to go over and below, or over and below? (laughs) 
rather than above, to do extra work, but not because it benefits you, but because it benefits your colleagues or your company, rather than writing that amazing article or um, coming up with some breakthrough for your own career. Maybe it looks like washing the dishes, um, helping someone else out. These are the kind of practices that I'd really encourage us to take up as we approach Easter. We need to lay some things down to take up some other things. I'm going to finish now. The beauty of this is that it's not about legalism. It's the opposite of legalism. Right? It's being caught up in the work that Jesus is doing that work of sacrifice that draws others into the plan of redemption. The passage that Sharon read as MC would almost be better for this one, but uh, for this section than this one. But for Christ also suffered once for our sins, for the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous. So he was righteous, he suffered for the unrighteous, to bring the unrighteous to God so that they might walk with God and dwell with God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. So we are made alive in the spirit when we join him in that work, when we follow him on the way to the cross. He makes it easy because it is God's intention that we should live life this way and that we should be a part of his mission. You can play, Graham. (laughs) And I've mentioned this verse heaps too, but I I love it, was we're talking about temples. And this is um, from a book that we're going to be looking at later in our Exile series. God is building a temple in which he will live and he's building it out of your life as you offer it to him and this work as you come to him the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ hear me now this morning I'm encouraging you to lay down the idol of self and take up the image of God in others It's your purpose, it's your destiny, it's your function. God, we just pray as we stand once again and offer our lives to you. By your Holy Spirit, God, you would form us into that people who are a temple in which you will dwell. That people who see your image in all of those that you have created. Thank you that you've made a way for us to do this by your grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Christian Resources.